Welcome to the Murthy teleconference series designed to benefit employers of foreign nationals. We would like to take this opportunity to remind you that the information you're about to receive is exclusive copyrighted material of the Murthy Law Firm. Accordingly, any unauthorized recording is prohibited by law and cannot be disseminated without our prior written permission. Without further ado, it is our pleasure and honor to introduce Attorney Sheila Murthy. Welcome. I'm Sheila Murthy, president and founder of the Murthy Law Firm, and acting as the moderator for today's topic, which is business immigration in the era of compliance and investigations. I'm honored to have with me two of my brilliant attorneys at the Murthy Law Firm, Alyssa Klein and Joel Janovich. So, as you know, this is the second part of the three-part series that we are talking about issues dealing with investigations. Last week, we had a brief overview uh, on the issue of public access files. It wasn't that brief. It was probably 30 to 40 minutes, which applies to companies where employers uh, were and uh, in, in which companies where there are H-1B workers, H-1B-1 workers, and or E-3 workers. Today, we're going to talk about the I-9 process, which applies to every single company that hires any workers in the United States. So as many of you probably already feel and think that the I-9 process is fairly simple, but it's deceptively simple. Because if you've ever been either an employee yourself, you're probably familiar with the process that upon being hired, you have to complete and fill out a short form then you're asked to present a document or two as the employee. Now, as the employer, which is what most of you are on this conference call, um, you really need to be concerned about having dotted your I's and crossed your T's. So as we said, it just does not apply only to foreign workers. It also applies to U.S. citizen workers who every single person has to complete the process. And if there are errors or there's a success or a merger, or what have you, sometimes you may have to redo the I-9 process each time that an H-1B employee status has extended, so you update it. And then you have to worry about what documents to keep on the record and how long you need to keep them and what you need to do if a investigator from the Department of Labor or Department of Homeland Security, DHS, DOL, they knock on the door of your company and demand to see your records. So with that, let me go to you, Alyssa, and ask uh, for you to give a provide a brief overview on what exactly is the I-9 and how does it work? Right. Thanks, Sheila. So the I-9 has not been around forever. Um, it was introduced pursuant to the Immigration Reform and Control Act of 1986, or IRCA, uh, and it's Essentially, it's a form that the a U.S. company is required to use when they hire a new employee. And it is used to verify the identity and that the, the worker is employment authorized in the U.S. Okay, And in completing the I-9 process, the employer requests that the, the new hire worker present or the employee present one or more required documents to establish their identity and basis for work authorization. Now, like you said, this is not limited to just foreign workers. This is you know really for all U.S. citizens. In H-1B, L-2, really across the board, um, if you're a U.S. company hiring a worker in the U.S., you're completing this I-9. Um, now, there are some, some small exceptions for this. Um, one may be an independent contractor or maybe a casual domestic worker, someone who comes, you know, every 
I don't know, a few weeks or so to clean your house. Um, but don't, uh, it's important for employers not to think that they can just uh, bypass this process by labeling an employee, say, an independent contractor. There is, you know, a substantive difference between an independent contractor and an employee that has to go through the I-9 process. Okay. And in terms of completion of the form itself, how does it work? I know there are three sections and all of that. Joel, can I have you jump in? Sure. Um, yeah, so the basics for completing the I-9 are that it's, if you look at the form, it's divided into three sections. Um, section one, that's the section to be completed by the employee, just ask for some basic information about the employee, including that person's immigration status. And, and when we say immigration status, it could be that they're a U.S. citizen and they would put U.S. citizen, whatever their status is. Um, section two, that's what the employer is going to be filling out, and that asks for basic information about the individual, the, the representative of the employer that's filling it out. So if it's the president of the company, they're going to complete it, or the HR representative or, or whomever. Um, and it, that person is also going to record the documents or complete the form that they're going to record the documents that were presented, including the identification number on those forms, um, to the 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 documents presented by the employee, that's going to be recorded by the employer in that section. Um, section three is for use for re-verification purpose. That's very important um, for H-1B employers because that's where you see that a lot. It also is uh, used for rehires. And then if you look at the very last page of the form, that gives you a list, uh, three columns that list you the different types of documents that are acceptable for purposes of identification and for purposes of showing work authorization. Okay, thank you, Joel. So generally speaking, the um, within three business days of the employee's first day of work, the employee is required to present to you all as the employer the original document or documents that are used to verify identity and work authorization, and the, uh, then the employer needs to complete Section 2. And so I'm going to have Alyssa maybe go over the details of how to complete Section 2. Right. So as Joel said, Section 2 involves the actual review, physical review of the documents provided by the worker. And it's either going to be documents from List A, which in them of themselves would provide your identity and work authorization verification. Um, but, you know, the employee could uh, provide a combination of documents from List B and List C. Um, now, if you know, people listening to this are not familiar um, with the different documents. It's, you know, it'd be good to just go look at the, the Form I-9, that last page. Um, and being familiar with those acceptable documents is really going to help the employer to be able to complete Section 2. Um, for example, a U.S. passport would be an example from List A. Um, List B is uh, the identification only, and that could be something like a driver's license or a voter's reg registration card. And again, if you do list, uh, list B, get a List B document, you have to get a List C document as well, which handles the employment authorization side. And that would be something like a Social Security card. Um, and even then, it's important to, when you're looking at that card, make sure it doesn't have any annotation on it that would restrict it. Okay. okay. And obviously, the employer must accept any of the documents from the list of d acceptable documents. So you as an employer, if you fail to do that, uh, it could amount to a form of unlawful discrimination. And there have actually been lawsuits against employers who've lost and lost a bunch of money because, um, you know, you could potentially be sued because people think, oh, I'll err on the side and ask everybody if they're a U.S. citizen. No, that's like a clear violation of the law.
So with that, let's jump to Section 3. And Joel, if you want to explain a little sure. bit. Yeah, so as I mentioned earlier, the Section 3 is used for re-verification purposes and for rehires. We're going to mainly focus on re-verification um, since you, you typically see that far more often, um, especially, again, if you, you hire foreign national workers. Re-verification is going to be necessary whenever a person's work authorization is set to expire. Um, so H-1B workers, a uh, worker with an EAD that has an expiration date, um, anytime you, you have an expiration date on one of those documents, you're going to have to go through the re-verification process. The first time you're re-verifying a particular employee, um, you can use the, act, the I-9 that you already have on record because presumably Section 1 and Section 2 are already completed, Section 3 is blank. First time you're re-verifying, you can use that same I-9. Subsequent re-verifications, you can get a new I-9 and just complete Section 3, that, that portion. Um, in completing Section 3, you, the worker needs to present evidence of work authorization. They do not need to re-verify the identity, which you already did with one of those uh, section, the column A or column B documents. Um, so the worker is pre permitted to present any document from list A or list C to, uh, to complete that process. So what we've generally seen, and I'm guessing that most of you on this conference call, this multi special conference call for employers in this era of investigations, is that if you employ H-1B workers, then there are two situations that are likely to encounter relatively, that you would encounter relatively frequently that have special I-9 requirements. One is, of course, the 240-day extension of work authorization based on timely filing a non-frivolous H-1B petition, which is pending um, before the person, the employee's H-1B status expires. The other is the employment of an H-1B worker after a change of employer petition has been filed, but before it is approved. And I'm going to ask Alyssa to jump in and explain both of these. All right. So I'm going to go ahead and start off with the 240-day rule, which I think probably most of our employers are familiar with or maybe have at least heard of in passing. And what this does is this allows an H-1B worker to continue to work for up to 240 days past the expiration of their I-9 with the same employer, provided that a timely extension was was filed for their H-1B classification You meant I-94 expiration. Yes, sorry, I-94, okay. yes, <laughs> based upon their I-94 expiration date, okay? Um, so there is an additional field in Section 2, and, and this is called additional information. And this is one of the... Uh, times when you when you as an employer would use that. So if you're in this 240-day extension window, the additional information field um, will be used and you would write in 240-day extension and then also enter the date that the I-129 extension was filed. Okay. Now the employee can then update Section 1 by crossing out the expiration date of their original employment authorization of their H-1, uh, for example, and write in the new date. Uh, and that would be taking a calculation of 240 days past their existing I-94 expiration date. Um, once that expiration date um, once that uh, extension has been approved, then we go back to that re-verification process that Joel just walked us through, um, and you would go ahead and update that in Section 3. Yeah, and, uh, maybe I can quickly kind of discuss the same concept, but when we have a, a change of employer. Um, so whenever you have a change of employer that you file an H-1B change of employer, uh, as I'm assuming most uh, employers are now aware, the foreign national the H-1B worker can start working for you immediately upon filing. However, there's no approval notice yet. So the question is, of course, what do you do for I-9 purposes? You don't have a document with a set expiration date. 
And so the instructions for the form are what, when this occurs, you still need to complete the I-9 process. Um, but since there's no expiration date, you're uh, and you are allowed to essentially that H-1B worker is typically allowed to continue working indefinitely until that petition is approved or denied. So it, what the employer should do is write AC-21 and the date the petition, the change of employer petition was filed in the additional information field. So that same field that where you would write 240-day extension for those cases, for the change of employers, you're going to write AC-21. Um, and then the H-1B employee's Form I-94 that was issued for employment with the previous employer, along with that person's foreign passport, that would qualify as acceptable documentation to verify both identification and work authorization. So just to be sure, Joel, I know that that's what the statute says, but ha I've heard some employers from time to time say that they are told that they have only a 240-day extension, even when it's a new employment? That is confusion because of that 240-day rule. The 240-day the rule is unusual. I, I don't know that it's even necessarily logical, but the way the regs are written, when you're filing for an extension of status, you can get 240 days beyond your I-94 expiration date. When you're doing a change of employer, even if your I-94 is about to expire, it allows that work authorization essentially indefinitely, um, which, again, I don't think makes a whole lot of sense. That's, well, it makes perfect sense because that's when the, the AC-21 law, when it was passed in October 2000, basically allowed an employee to continue to work forever until a decision was made because that was the whole purpose of granting portability, H-1B portability to the employee. The 240-day, it's kind of idiotic. I kind of wish they, they would have given that same benefit to the existing employers when when USCIS is just taking too long to adjudicate an extension. True, that's 100% correct. But remember, the 240-day rule was way uh, well before the AC-21 law was passed. So nobody touched that. So it's a funny, weird thing. I don't know that the con that Congress had meant to penalize an employee staying with the same employer with an extension. But in a sense, they only have 240 days or a little about eight months instead of an unlimited time with a new employer when the idea was to give everybody a benefit it, not to penalize an existing employer where the employee is just extending status. Have you found the same thing as well, Alyssa? Well, I, I would agree. I don't think there was any intention to penalize, but I, I think with respect to processing times, no to go back expected. to what nobody ex really probably expected us to be looking at 11, 12 month, you know, H-1B pending extensions along with the suspension of premium processing at the same time. Well, it comes yes. back to I, the to true what a true pure capitalism is, which is America. There's no sub, there's a supply and demand issue, but more important, we're stuck with a monopoly with a government that decides when to approve what, and all of us taxpayers are funding uh, a bureaucracy that continues to expand with more and more ICE agents and DOL agents, uh, but lesser and lesser people who are actually picking up the tab and do you know the cash cow. The H one is referred to as a cash cow for the USCIS, yet they're cutting the hand that, biting the hand that feeds it, as they say. Anyway, that's enough of my ra raving and ranting about this issue. So with respect to the I-9 retention requirements, the basic rule is to retain I-9 records for either three years from the date that the worker has been hired or for one year beyond the date that the employment ends the termination occurs of employment, whichever is later of the two. So if the person's there with you for 10 or 15 years, then it's one year after that, or if they leave in one month, you still have the three-year requirement. I-9 records can be retained either in paper form, on microfilm, microfiche, 
which shows that you know yes. it doesn't happen anymore. Electronic, obviously, PDF scanned easiest. There are specific requirements for each type of record retention system. Uh, and although we won't actually go into each of these in detail, we certainly r recommend that you briefly at least review the I-9 Handbook for Employers, which is published by the USCIS because it explains in detail what must be done to meet the retention requirements for each different kind of system, the way it's maintained. Um, you have inspection of I-9 documents, which by law are representative of the Department of Homeland Security or Department of Labor or Department of Justice, Civil Rights Division, Immigrant and Employee Rights Section may actually have the right by law to inspect I-9 documents. Right now, and that's a very good point because they, they do have the right to inspect it. And not only that, um, you know, they potentially may give you only three days notice to uh, to provide the records, to make them available. Uh, so the question an employer may find them is, well, what do I what do I do? How do I how do I handle this? Um, and, you know, one uh, you know method of doing this is being proactive. If you're, you know, unsure about how your I-9 records are being maintained or if you even have any doubt or just want to be extra sure and double check, you know, review your I-9 records now, okay? Um, so you can feel good about what you have in place. And also, if you see where there's any room for improvement, you can take those steps now, okay? Um, because otherwise, you're dealing in, in a reactionary way. Um, you're going to have a knock on the door or something like that, and, and then you're going to be scrambling to, to review all your records and see if everything is in good place. And, you know, at that point, you want to make sure you have, you know, an attorney involved uh, so they're aware of, of the review that's, that's going on and can help you prepare. Yeah, okay. so I, I should point out, we, we do have clients that come to us or people that, you know, maybe have never, we've never communicated with. They call, they contact us, employers that contact us and say, hey, I got a knock, knock on my door. They're looking at my records. What do I do? Um, and, you know, we'll look at the records and it's a mess and they've done a lot of things wrong. And we'll help them to try to mitigate the damage, try to, to explain to the government they weren't acting in bad faith. They, they were trying to do what's right. They just didn't pay much attention to it. Um, we can help with that. That is not ideal. The time to be trying to do something to really protect yourself is now. It's before someone has started to investigate you. Um, the the government does kind of look at these, any kind of problems with your I-9 records. They will usually look at them in two different ways. Either these are technical violations or a substantive violation. Now, a technical violation is still a violation. So, for instance, if you completed the I-9 records, but it took you two weeks after the employee was hired, that's a violation. It's a technical violation. You can't completely get rid of it, but doing it two weeks later as opposed to not doing it all, let's say, which would be a, a major substantive violation, um, the government does distinguish between those two. They, they will fine and pen penalize people accordingly. Um, they really are would much rather punish bad actors than, let's say, slightly careless actors. I will tell you, if you look into this now, if you do a self-audit, if you, you, know, you want to contact us and hire us to help you do an audit, it will save you a ton of money in the long term where if somebody comes knocking on your door and looks at your records, at that point, again, there are things that we can do to help you, but it, we can do much more good for you. It's going to save you much more money in the long term to be proactive. Um, so I don't know okay. if you... so just so just again to re uh, reinforce what Joel just said, the basically always prevention is cheaper than cure. It's less expensive. It's much easier. It's faster. And it's better for you to take proactive steps in advance. Also, we've looked in at Murthy Law Firm uh, in um, 
we've, we've basically tried to figure out ways to provide much greater value to you all as companies in terms of relooking at all of our legal fees. And we're looking at, for example, a simple workbook with a consultation at a very nominal flat fee, and then a little bit more for you know, a couple thousand bucks from a thousand dollars up to, I think, five and above, depending on how complex, but there's like thousand dollars, 2,500, 5,000 different levels that basically we are relooking at all of our fees to be more protective and proactive for you, whether you're a small or mid-sized company or a much larger company, because we can do a pre preliminary review and sampling and then take it from there because our goal is to save money and save time for you all so that you can actually rest peacefully in the long term. Uh, Joel, were you trying to say something? Oh, uh, if you are in company and you have questions about this and that you're looking for assistance um, and you'd like to speak for a couple of minutes with an attorney, uh, just kind of for some general information to see the kind of services that we provide, please do email us at law at murthy.com. That's L-A-W at M-U-R-T-H-Y dot com. Um, and we will schedule you to speak with an attorney, a senior attorney, for a few minutes to kind of go over the services we offer, things that we can kind of help do to, to protect your company. Wonderful. I know we always try to keep these between 30 to 40 minutes, but guess what? It's only 20 minutes today. And so I'm sure all of us as busy employers and professionals could get back to our work. But the goal, as always, is to help you as companies stay afloat and stay profitable and not worry about things and focus on what you provide best and leave the immigration rules and um, employment and uh, legal issues to us at the Murthy Law Firm. So on behalf of Alyssa Klein, Joel Janovich, myself, Sheila Murthy, and the entire Murthy Law Firm team, we thank you for joining us this afternoon and we look forward to continuing to take excellent care of you. Thanks a million and have a great afternoon.